when I started as a CFO, I was like 30, 31, kind of a, an age. I'm pretty young for that. everyone. Welcome to Where Accountants Go, the Accounting Careers Podcast. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for this very show. Well, first of all, thank you to everyone for putting up with our going dark period a few weeks ago. I personally have been out ill and it was just a little difficult to keep up with the production schedule. But all that's passed now and we are moving forward in a very big way. Today, we have Andrew Jordan joining us, and he's a CPA as well as being the COO for Finance Pal. I knew scheduling this that it would be an interesting interview because of his rather expedited career path, if you will. He was the president of an organization by the time he was in his early 30s due to some very unusual circumstances. But what I didn't realize was the level to which we were going to be able to discuss public accounting and best practices for building a work environment that works not just for the employer, but for the team more specifically as well. I really enjoyed this one. And make sure you listen to the full interview. Don't speed through it because it surprised me, but we even had a discussion about a fraud situation as well. We packed a lot into this episode. You're really going to enjoy it. If you do learn something from this episode, please check out our own unique classes online as well. We have tax courses, Excel courses, other accounting courses to help you build your career. And I'm very excited that just recently we were able to start to put some of those online on demand, not just online live, but on demand online, specifically our tax course. I think you'll get a lot of value out of that. And as always, if there's anything I can do for you in your own career or for accounting organizations you're involved in, please reach out to me as well. I'm happy to help in absolutely any way that I can. Well, with that, let's go ahead and get started with today's guest. Here's Andrew Jordan of Finance Pal. Hello, Andrew. Well, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. No problem. No problem. Well, for the audience, today we have another interesting and very forward-thinking guest joining us for the program, Andrew Jordan, the CPA and the COO for Finance Pal, is joining us. There were many items in Andrew's background that sort of caught my attention. He's had a very quick trajectory in his career, being president of an organization early on and, and having his own niche practice and then merging it just recently, into another successful organization. So we're going to have a lot to talk about in this interview. And I don't want to spoil it, but at the end, we intend to get into sort of the state of public accounting as well from a work environment standpoint. So this should definitely be an interesting and lively discussion. Well, Andrew, before we get to the present time, let's make sure we cover the early years so people understand where you're coming from. What led you to decide to consider accounting as a possible career choice in the first place? And so it's a good question. My dad is a doctor. And so I grew up knowing he's an eye surgeon. And I knew I wanted to do something highly technical that I could do that a lot of people maybe couldn't do. That was interesting to me. And I also wanted to help people. And so those were my two kind of criteria. And the third thing I knew was I did not want to do medicine. I think that's a common thing. People whose dads are doctors 
you know, you see the inside of it, you see a lot of things that are wrong with that profession and that industry. And uh, so that wasn't for me. And so he actually, uh, my dad had me go and talk to his lawyer and go and talk with his CPA and talk with a few other professionals and kind of interview them my senior year to figure out what might be interesting. And I really settled on CPA. The CPA I talked with was the CPA had done my dad's books for his practice for years and years. And just seemed like a good fit, a good way that I could do something technical and be able to help people while I did it. Wow. That's a very methodical way of figuring out. It's a good accountant kind of approach, right? Yes. Yes. I love it. I love it. Also, I love how you just had to throw in there. I wanted to help people and do something highly technical, but not medicine. (laughs) Definitely not medicine. Yeah. My dad's a fantastic doctor, but uh, there's a lot of doctors who can be a little challenging to work with. Come to find out there's a lot of partners in CPA firms that can be challenging to work with too, but we didn't really know that at the time. Imagine that. Imagine that. That's funny. That's funny. Well, so tell us about, I guess, how you got started in your career. Did you go through college and get the typical internship or how did you get your first job or two? Yeah. So went to Missouri State University 4.0 in my undergrad, did the one-year master's that are pretty common now. And I joined Beta Alpha Psi. And Beta Alpha Psi is how I got kind of connected with BKD's home office is in the Springfield, Missouri, where my college was. And so they actually hired me, I think it was two years before I graduated. That's, I think, not an uncommon thing to kind of walk down candidates. So I did a tax internship when I was doing my master's with them and then rolled on into full-time later that summer. Oh, wow. Okay. And you said two years in advance? Yeah, it, it was more than a year. It might have been more like a year and a half, but it was okay. yeah, well in advance. At least at the time, and um, we're talking now, what, 15 years ago or something, that was not an uncommon practice. Sure, sure. Yeah, actually, for anybody listening to this show that you know, you're thinking about accounting as a major, yeah, you need to know that the demand is high. And actually, no, that's, mm-hmm. not, that's still not uncommon these days for, yeah. <laughs> for people to secure those interns early. Yeah, that is a good thing. That is a good thing. I noticed when I, you know, I was looking on LinkedIn, of course, and looking at some of your background, looks like you were BKD for a short time and then moved on to another firm for a short time. And I'm sure you learned some, you know, some key items at that point, you know, key skills or, or just things that helped you in your later career. How did those first couple experiences benefit you? One of the things that, and it's not exactly accounting related, but it's definitely career related. And it's not something I talk about a lot, but you know, I had this it seemed like great trajectory for my career when I got my offer for BKD. And BKD is kind of, in Springfield at least, at the time was kind of the employer of choice. It's a top 10. It's their corporate headquarters. Um, you know, it's a big deal. And so we actually invited the other people from my start group, most of whom I was already friends with from college, and uh, invited them over to our house. We had a big dinner and we all celebrated like, hey, this is going to be our career. I think one of those people is still at BKD at the time at this time. But we didn't know that at the time, which is interesting because I was in Beta Alpha Psi. Like we had these conversations, but there was still a lot that even every Thursday going and hearing people talk to us, uh, there was a lot I didn't know about the industry. And one of those things that hopefully some people listening to this will be encouraged by is I've had a really successful career. I'm, I'm very successful, very happy where I'm at now. There's a lot of good things that happen in my career. I did the internship at BKD. I knew I was going to be partner 12 to 15 years later. After my first kind of full year, actually slightly less than a year, right after my first tax season being a full-time employee, on April 15th, it was the Friday that we were doing a big, maybe it was the 16th, I guess, a big celebratory 
party in the afternoon. I got called into the partner in charge's office, a man I've never talked to before. And he said, today's your last day. You have an hour to clean out your desk. You won't be going to the party. And I was terminated from my very first job, completely blindsided. Now I went back and I talked with my professors and they, they said, oh yeah, this is not an uncommon thing for large firms that after tax season, and probably small firms too, after tax season, they kind of evaluate who's maybe not as good of a fit and cut those people. And so they're not having to carry them through until the next tax season. And that's exactly what happened to me. And even though that happened to me, uh, I passed CPA exam on the first time. My low score was in the upper 80s, 4.0 all the, all the way through school. I thought I had this career clearly in front of me. In fairness, I wasn't enjoying the work at BKD in a lot of ways. It wasn't what I expected. There was no client contact. It was more data entry than I was kind of expecting. But nevertheless, it blindsided me that I would be terminated. And so if, if you're out there, I'll say this to your listeners, like, and you have experienced that or you do experience that, like, there's a lot of hope for you. It made me reconsider being a CPA and made me consider going back and getting a law degree and, and taking a whole different career path. But let's normalize this a little bit. It happens a lot in our industry and it doesn't mean you're a bad CPA or a bad accountant. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, because so I, my day job is I work in employment, have a recruiting firm, you know, and, and there really is life after termination. You know, I was fired once in, in my early career as well. And, and yeah, when sure. you're blindsided by it, it really makes you question things. But um, that's a good lesson, particularly, you know, for someone in your position now to, to be sharing. I just have to ask, so I know you passed the CPA exam the first time. Were you a CPA at that point? I was. I was about the oh. first person in my start group. That's one of the reasons it made it so surprising too, right? Like I thought I was doing pretty well <laughs> at the time. Wow. Wow. Okay. Okay. I do think they do some hiring in anticipation of letting people go later too. So, well, yeah. and one of the things I heard was they hadn't done this for the last several years because enough people had kind of quit on their own. Like, and so there's a balance. Like, if there's not enough natural attrition, like it's overstaffing for a busy season, and then we'll terminate some people. But one other thing I'll say, and I like BKD. Uh, when I was CFO of a company, we actually switched CPA firms. I, as the CFO, chose it. I chose BKD. Right. I have friends there. Nothing at all negative against the firm, but it's a way of doing business that I didn't expect. And one of the things I've learned about myself is I am terrible at office politics. And if you work for a bigger firm, a bigger office anywhere, whether it's public or it's industry, like there tends to be more politics. And if you aren't good at it, you can be caught up in it. And so again, it can not work out well for you. Okay. Before we leave this area, I'm curious because you said this caused you to question, you know, whether or not you should continue in accounting. Yeah. And maybe pursue law. And what was the deciding factor, or what what insight did you have that ended up keeping you in accounting? You know, that is a really good question. Part of it, honestly, was just when I looked at law, I didn't think that it would necessarily add a whole lot to my career. It'd really be spending several years in school and racking up student debt so that I could then start at ground zero for another career. And I thought, you know, I loved my classes and I did well in them, and I did well in the CPA exam. Like I. I don't think I'm terrible at this, even though I was feeling that way, like kind of emotionally. So like kind of intellectually, I'm like, I'm probably not completely terrible at this. I should give it another try. Glad I did. Okay. Yeah, good point. That wasn't the right fit out of your control. So that makes sense. So how did you find the next position? Was it a challenge at that point or did that come pretty easily? No, I mean, finding a... what When you are selling, your emotional state really matters. And interviewing is to some extent selling in my mind. You know, you're representing yourself. And when you're feeling down on yourself, it's really harder to do that. 
And the bigger factor is, even though there is a high demand for CPAs, a very inexperienced CPA who has just been terminated and is looking for a job in late April, that's a tough niche to find. I did. I found another firm. I thought, you know, big firm, not for me. I'll go to a very small firm. And it was a good experience too. McCullen Associates, where I went next, it's a very traditional firm in that there's like one CPA who is the, uh, the queen bee and everyone else around them is like a worker bee. And so you're doing like pieces of the work and then everything goes through that one partner who owns it. And so it was a good experience. I learned a lot from there. I had to learn payroll, which I had never covered in school or at BKD. And so I had to do payroll taxes and those kind of things. But that wasn't a fit for me either because I didn't really want to be a worker bee. So the next step was my dad actually bumped into somebody who asked about how is your son who's the accountant. She was an accountant as well. And my dad said, well, honestly, he's not loving where he's working. And she said, well, we're not necessarily hiring, but we're in a small town. And so, you know, it's not a lot of CPAs around. So like, we'll make exceptions. If it's the right person, you should come talk to where I work. And so I did. And that was Schmidt Associates. Wonderful experience. Dan Schmidt's a wonderful guy, wonderful guy to work for. Fascinating place. Open book management CPA firm. I knew exactly how much everyone else made. I knew exactly how much the owner made. We met monthly to um, go over the financials of the books together on a big screen. Have lunch. It was really interesting. You knew where you stood. There was a lot more transparency, which I really liked. My wife and I are actually big city people. And so we were planning on moving from Springfield to like Chicago or Seattle or somewhere. But then this opportunity opened up. It was a really unique opportunity. And so they also leveraged a lot of technology, which appealed to me too. And so took the position, went there, learned a ton, got poached by one of our clients who was a tech company to be their CFO. Okay. <laughs> wow. After we're done with this, or maybe later on, I'd like to talk more about that transparency at Smith Associates. That is intriguing. Yeah, I've not heard of many firms who do that. The other thing they do is they started a group of other small CPA firms that gets together maybe once a quarter or something, and they have lunch, and they just share ideas. And these are local firms. These are not like, well, I'll meet with you because you are on the other side of the country, so we're not competing. There are other local firms. It's a really cool, very open, very, very progressive kind of idea. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. The owners there must be very secure in, in who they are and their firm to, to be able to do that. That is awesome. So a client approaches you about being their CFO. Tell us, tell us about the client. What kind of business was it? And how did that work out for you? So it was a, a client, actually, I was the one working on primarily, and it was a tech company. And so they had a software division. They also had some doing hardware and they did some like high-end audio. So it's kind of a collection of businesses in a, a way. And so... They were building a big building, 40,000 square foot building for their new headquarters. They only had like 40 people at the time, but they were growing really, really rapidly. And so just a really cool opportunity, really, really good people there. A lot of things, again, getting in almost on the ground floor kind of a thing. And I was already familiar with the client. I already had a good comfort level with like, I could do the work. I knew what was going on. So yeah, it was really attractive to me. So I went that direction. Okay. What what kind of technology again? Uh, So they wrote custom software. So like from the ground up, you want an app built, they'll build an app for your company or software that works in the back end. We worked with a lot of manufacturers and so custom software for them. Interesting. Okay. Okay. And is this what you ended up being the president of the organization as well? Yeah. Yeah, sure is. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. That's bound to be intriguing to, you know, people early (laughs) on in their career. How did that happen? (laughs) Yeah. And, and so like timeline for me, I'd been a BKD for like a year, McCullough for like a year, Schmidt for maybe four or five years. 
So when I started as a CFO, I was like 30, 31, kind of a, an age. So pretty young for that. And the timeline was we were finishing up that 40,000 square foot building when I came on board. I realized as I was the CFO that our owner was, like a lot of business owners, always endangering the business by taking out too much cash, right? There was the house on the, the uh, beach, but then there was the third house that was being built. And we bounced payroll two or three times because, and I would spend all day trying to get him to transfer money back in that I knew that he had in his personal account, but he wanted to buy another toy or a bigger yacht or whatever else it was. And really a challenging time there, unexpectedly so. But nevertheless, we grew. We ended up with about 75 employees. We were having enough cash issues, though, that the thing that made sense was to bring in an equity group. So we actually were acquired by Native American, their equity group. They had a bunch of companies they had acquired. So that was an interesting experience as a CFO doing kind of the song and dance of like, here's who we are. Here's our financial reports. Here's our numbers. So they acquired us. It worked really well. Suddenly, there was plenty of cash. And and we really took off. We grew really well. All seemed to be going fantastically. And I actually checked with my lawyer. He says, I can talk about this because it's a matter of public record now. But I'd been there maybe a couple years. It was maybe a year after the equity group acquired us. And one of the reasons they bought us was because we had this contract with Walmart. And so where we're based was in Joplin, Missouri, and Walmart's like an hour south in Bentonville, Arkansas. And so we had this contract and like there was actually a contract and there were emails from this guy at Walmart who was talking to us about this project. It was like a three and a half million dollar project. So like pretty good size. But the real thing was once you've done the first project, you can do so much more, so many more projects. And this all makes sense because our owner, our founder, my boss and CEO, his wife had worked at Walmart in their IT department for several years. And so like, we were close to them. Like this all made a lot of sense. And uh, we even got a big deposit check from them to help us as we're ramping up for the first job. Super exciting times. The rest of the business, a lot of things were going well too, but like that was the shining star. And that was really why I think primarily the equity group was interested in us, so much potential with that. And so then it, it was summertime. And again, I think it'd been about a year or so since we'd been bought and maybe six months to a year kind of thing. And things just didn't feel right. And as CPAs were told, don't ever subordinate your judgment to anybody else, right? Like your intuition and your kind of smell test is really, really important. And, and that ties in with your integrity as a CPA. And so I remember it. I told my wife, obviously, I talked to her about it. And I, I told her, I'm going to go today. And I'm going to go to our, the headquarters of the equity group. I'm going to talk to my boss's boss. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to come home today without a job. But like, I have to do this. I, I can't not say something. But I didn't have any proof. Right? And, and what I was suspecting was like the Walmart job just didn't feel right. It kept dragging on. And there was nothing about it that like I could point a finger to. There was no evidence. It just didn't feel right. And again, that's our professional judgment to a large extent. And in the mind of the equity group, like this guy, my boss was still the goose that laid the golden egg, right? Like he is the guy with all the relationships and it only works the company because of him. He's where the value is. And so and I don't have any proof. Here I am. Like I was sure I was going to come home without a job, but I knew I needed to say something. So to my surprise, the guy in charge of the equity group running at their CEO took me seriously, even though I didn't have any evidence. And he said, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to gather evidence and we're going to see if this is really the case or not. And so this was the toughest thing I've ever done in my professional career. I'm a very honest person. It's very hard for me to be at all of the people. And so every week, my boss would come back from his meeting, I'm doing air quotes here, with Bentonville, uh, with, with Walmart, and give me a detailed report about this guy, who it turns out he completely fabricated. 
but this guy had a history. He had a family. I mean, every Thursday I would then get the like half hour update on what was going on with the project and all the other stuff they were talking about. And so then I had to pretend that I wasn't suspicious and make notes and gather evidence and those kind of things. Eventually the FBI got involved and it turned into a, a real case. We eventually found enough evidence, confronted him, he confessed. He's actually currently in prison and, and will be for probably a long time. So it was interesting. Got to work with the FBI, got to help go through all of our numbers with them. Uh, they actually tried to recruit me afterwards, which would have been kind of an interesting career jog. But at the time, so and this is how I became president. I was CFO, but it turns out that um, for a variety of a uh, bunch of the income that we had, even though we were getting checks and they were being deposited, a fair amount of it turned out it was also fraudulent. And so shell companies, elaborate financial statement fraud, not just like the normal stealing cash, much more elaborate than that, like like advanced elaborate web of stuff. And so it turns out this company that we all thought was profitable was actually losing a couple hundred thousand dollars a month. And there was a huge leadership vacuum and no one knew what to do. And so I was CFO. And so I said, well, look, here's what we're going to do. We don't have any salespeople and we've never really had to do sales because our owner was the one with all the relationships, many of which also turned out to be somewhat fake. And so we're going to just meet every week. We're going to talk about sales and we're going to try to figure this out. So some programmers and the CPA got together and we tried to figure out sales. And through a lot of hard work, a year later, we had turned the company around. And so we cut a bunch of expenses. We moved to smaller offices. We cut our head count down and we were consistently profitable a year later. Now barely profitable, but we were consistently profitable, which is a lot from losing a couple hundred thousand a month. Unfortunately, at the time, our equity group had some some things completely unrelated to us happen. And so they shut down like half a dozen of their businesses all at once. And we were one of the ones that they shut down. It made sense. We were only barely profitable and they had a lot of baggage with us. And so it made sense, but it was still really surprising. So at that point, and that was in, again, late April, just the timing worked out that way. So all of a sudden, I'm in a small community. I'd been president of a company. There's not a lot of job openings for presidents <laughs> of companies in Joplin, Missouri. And so uh, either we move, uh, which at that point, we had kids and both sets of grandparents were close. And so we really liked being here. Or I dust off my old plans and start my own CPA firm. So that's what I did three or four years ago. Interesting. Oh, my gosh. I had no idea we were going to get into a fraud and ethics kind of story. Thank you. Oh, thank you yeah, for sharing that. It was interesting. It was not very fun to live through. I'll tell you, I actually had a stress test done at 33 or 34 because my ch- I had chest pains from the stress of working with the FBI and not letting my boss know. And it was, it was a terrible time. Yeah. I mean, you're a double agent maybe isn't the right term, but you're trying to That's gather evidence. Like, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and be the good CFO and execute your job for the owner. And at the same time, what you're really doing is figuring out that it's all fake. And oh my right. gosh, oh my gosh. Yeah. And at that age too, that's, wow, <laughs> that's pretty amazing. So just to clarify, so the the person at Walmart just wasn't even real. There wasn't any kind of contract. Yeah. It was like a spooked oh. email address. So it looked like it came from, there were actually several of them. So it looked like the emails were coming from Walmart and they weren't. Yeah. Walmart had never heard of us. We'd never been an approved vendor. All of that part was fake, too. Okay. Okay. So I did intend to ask you what drove you to start your own practice, and so that segues really well. I didn't realize it was somewhat out of necessity, I guess, at this point. So how did you start your practice coming off 
all of this? I mean, what kind of business did you go after? How did you get your first client? How, how do you start a practice coming out of this made-for-TV movie situation? <laughs> right. right. Yeah, that's about right. And important to note, like, this was right after April 15th. This was no planning. I mean, we'd actually had, had been a little bit worried about this. And so I had talked to, at the equity group, that CEO who I'd gone to originally, they had terminated him pretty suddenly a few months before, brought a new CEO for hire kind of guy to come in and clean up the group. And I talked with them pretty candidly, like, hey, I'm a little bit worried and been re- reassured multiple times, like, no, no, your company, nothing's going to go, nothing's going to change there. So we were really unprepared, no savings. I hadn't been trying to get any work on the side. So I had nothing to start with and nothing to build from. And so what we did is just quite candidly, we, I got an SBA loan. It was fantastic, fantastic experience. I have three kids. And so and my wife was staying home. So it was a sole income. So got an SBA loan to help us pay bills and get the firm started. No idea what I was doing. So like most people, you kind of take most any work you can get. I was very fortunate early, early on. Uh, maybe before I even had my first client, I encountered Ron Baker and his work. So Ron mm-hmm. Baker is a value price guy, the value price guy for CPAs. Heard him talk several times, read several of his books. And so I built my firm with would price a fixed fee every month and it would not be by the hour and we would have no accounts receivable. We auto-draft everyone's account the first of the month for the work we'll do that month. And we just built it that way from start and it was it's been fantastic. Really glad I did that from the get-go. And it took us probably a couple years before we really knew what we were doing. And it, it was really in 2020 that we kind of came into our own. A bunch of interesting things happened, um, some setbacks, some real successes. Um, during the time I got to go to the American Institute of CPAs Leadership Academy, that was probably one of my best experiences of my career. I still talk to those people regularly from my class from two years ago. We get on a call every single month, uh, fantastic networking, fantastic training, and, and really good experience. But So that was a highlight during the period. But man, it is a scramble. Starting a business is hard. And starting a business when you didn't have a chance to save up and prepare and have your logo and your website and all the processes already figured out before day one, you know, having to do that in the scramble, really hard. And Brené Brown talks about abundance versus scarcity mindset. I talk with my team about this. Regularly, we had a meeting yesterday and we talked about it because when you have a scarcity mindset, you know, there's not enough, there's not enough time, there's not enough money. You make decisions that are definitely suboptimal. And so when you're scrambling, like that's, you, you kind of take on what you can get. Because I had the SBA loan that helped insulate me a little bit from it because I got some good advice from people like some of the thought leaders in our industry talking about value pricing and those kind of things. It helped. And it wasn't, wasn't nearly as bad off as a lot of people, I think, their first few years when they start out. But it's really our third year that we figured out, I've been a CFO, and most CPAs have not. And so that's a, that's a uniqueness we have. And I like working with fast-growing, kind of tech-forward owners who have businesses between $1 and $5 million a year and doing what I call CFO services for them. So sure, we'll do your bookkeeping, your taxes, but we'll meet once a month for 90 minutes. And we'll, I'll put on my CFO hat. And like, I'm a CFO for your business. I'll teach you how to read your financials. And we'll go through them together. And there's a lot of accountability, a lot of like kind of coaching. We have an agenda that carries forward from last month. So we have notes and reminders and those kind of things. And that's kind of what we started doing. We had two sign up in December 2020, two new clients, which and these are big clients. These are typically, you know, $20,000, $30,000 a year type clients for us. 
And so it was, it was really right around the same time that I was transitioning to finance power that like we finally it clicked three years in, which is a common timeline, I think, for business to really figure out who they are and what they're doing, who they serve well. And so just as we were doing that, we transitioned to finance pal, but really glad I did the finance pal team. So I met those guys through, um, there's a group I'm in called Thrival, which anyone who has their own CPA firm highly recommend. It's a group of like-minded, forward-thinking, techie, small CPA firm owners. I think there's 150 or so of us. And one of them posted, hey, there's these guys in Chicago where I'm in who need some like QuickBooks Online Consulting. So I actually flew up in February 2020, right before everything closed off, and met with these guys, thinking that it was going to be a nice consulting project for me. And they said, hey, we want you to come and run our our new company, Finance Pal. Well, then they ended up going dark for a while because they were in Chicago, and they had about 300 employees in their, their main company, and they had to remove them all to be remote. And so... While they were doing that, I figured I wasn't going to hear from them again. And then fall of last year, they popped back up and they said, their main company is Community Tax. It is a, an actually good, reputable, not one of the shady ones, tax resolution company. I researched them a bunch before I you know, started working with them. And we spent last fall, me doing some kind of consulting for them, getting some things underway with the plan of we'd launch as a separate company January 1 of 21. And I'd be the kind of managing partner, chief operations officer, and one of the owners. So that's what we did. That's been interesting. interesting. Yeah, we started out with about 12 people, like 12 employees. Turns out that, and they know this, my, I love my partners. I, they're fantastic people, really good at a lot of things, really not great at hiring or evaluating bookkeepers. Right? They're not accountants. Hmm. This is not their thing. They don't know. And so of those 12, I still have two of them with me a year, a little less than a year later. There's some of just, just some processes that weren't built. So it was really a mess and we started it going into tax season. So we have grown now. So we've replaced 10 of those 12 people and we now are 25 strong, a little less than a year later. So we are rocketing up, moving really fast, growing really well. Wow. Thank you for sharing the story. I thought that Finance Pal was just sort of a typical merger, somebody doing similar services as you, and you you just merged your firm in. I just didn't realize they were in a, in a different field even. You know, that's, that's very interesting. Well, yeah, so community taxes, tax resolution, and, and kind of how finance all started is the people who need tax resolution who get into trouble typically own small businesses, right? It's hard to get in that much trouble with a W-2 employee. But you own a small business, you have no idea your financials because you don't have any books, and then you get to tax time, and it turns out you owe $40,000 and you have no idea, blindsided by it, right? And this happens regularly with small businesses. Mm-hmm. And so they said, man, we hate seeing these same people like stuck in this trap. Like I said, they're good people, genuinely good people. How can we help these people? And so they said, what they really need is bookkeeping. So they have visibility into what they're going to owe and they can plan for it and those kind of things. So they started doing bookkeeping sort of to fill a need that they saw. And so Financial is, we're a public accounting company. We're not a CPA firm because my, own, my other owners are not CPAs, but in a lot of ways, we are functionally a public accounting firm. We don't do audits. We do our mission statement. We have two parts. So the first is to provide good quality, but affordable accounting tax and advisory services for small businesses. And then the second part is to be the best place to work for good accountants. Hmm. Okay. Well, so that transitions into sort of one of the last items I, I wanted to ask you about before we get into the final question. So how do you become one of the best places to work for accountants? What's your philosophy on that? What are you guys doing? 
it's the best place to work for good accountants. And we, we say that intentionally. I talk to my team about this because I want to be the worst place to work for bad accountants. If you're lazy, if you don't have technical skills, if you don't have good people skills, like we want it to be a really uncomfortable place for you to work where you maybe leave on your own. And if not, we'll help you out the door. Because one of the commitments to my team is, unlike a lot of small CPA firms, we're willing to make the hard calls and we're willing to remove people from the team versus the easy call, which is just make the rest of the team carry the extra work from the person who's not doing what they should. And so best place to work for good accountants is basically what were all the things I disliked about other places I worked and how do I make it not that way? So how do we make sure we don't have politics here, like office politics? How do we have real accountability and transparency, something I really liked at Schmidt? And so we're not open book like they are, but we are like big in key performance indicators and metrics and having people understand where they are and what they're doing well. We do quarterly reviews with people and we give them real meaningful feedback. And our promise to our people, our goal is, and we know we're not 100% on this, but in your quarterly check-ins, as we call them, the feedback you get, none of this should be a surprise. And we specifically ask what on here that I told you you did well or that I told you I want you to improve on, what if it was a surprise? Because you should have already heard it in the moment as it's happening. We should be giving frequent feedback to people. So best place to work for a good accountant has good processes. We have bookkeeping assistants who actually download all the statements. So bookkeepers get to do bookkeeping instead of chasing clients for missing statements. We have people who like chasing clients for missing statements, chase the clients for missing statements. And all this happens because we use some pretty sophisticated technology that makes the communication happen kind of seamlessly on the back end. Also, as I say, all of this, like, this is a work in process like any company. This is our goal. This is our dream. We are on the process to having it. It's better than anywhere else I've worked, but we still have a ways to go to really get where we want to be. Okay. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a, before we get to the last three questions I that I end every show with, I, I'm curious to get your take on this. For traditional public accounting, tax, audit, bookkeeping, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure you see this, you know, demand for people is high and, and supply for people that employers feel are qualified is, is lower. <laughs> and I'm curious, since you started from the fixed fee standpoint and no AR, and, and now I love the line, worst place for bad accountants, where do you feel public accounting is headed as a profession, traditional public accounting? Predict the future for me a little bit, five or 10 sure. years out. What are your thoughts? Some of the main trends that I'm seeing is we're having tech companies get more and more into accounting. QuickBooks Live offers that. Bench has been around for a while. Uh, Jeff Bezos or Bezos, however you say his now name, he famously invested, you know, just a few months ago in one. That's going to take, in theory, some of the bread and butter from us CPA, some of the accounting services. So because of that, that accelerates a trend that's already been going on, which is people really want advice, and they want advice from a qualified professional who cares about them and their business and is competent and is good at communicating that advice. Traditionally, CPAs have not been the skill set. The skill set has been really fast at a 10 key and uh, really technical, and that's been the emphasis. And I think increasingly, the importance is going to be around things like communicating and communicating well and giving good advice. And so I think CPAs are being pushed or pulled or choosing on their own in some cases to go into advisory a lot more. I think another trend that we're seeing that's going to accelerate a lot is niches. I think it's going to be hard to be that generalist who has one or two of every kind of business and compete against someone. You know, if I have one or two restaurants and there's a firm that all they do is restaurants, I think that's hard to compete. And so I think that's going to continue to accelerate as well. 
it's interesting how some of the basics are, you know, there's there's the basics because they continue to be true. When you talk about niches being important, well, you've got to provide value to the customer, you know? And so for someone that's doing that, there's there's just going to be more value. And and the advisory part, I hate to say it, but that comes down to what, what we've told people for years is that, your technical skills are sort of the stakes to get in the game, but it's your soft yep. skills, you know, that <laughs> help you be help you be successful. That is very interesting. That is very interesting. Thank you, thank you. That's some really yeah. good insight. Definitely. I think maybe a third trend. I know this is kind of how you and I, you and I started talking. I think a little bit is I hope that public accounting will realize that treating people badly, making them... So we have no overtime with our firm. That's you know another way that we try to be the best place to work for good accountants. We have flexible hours. Everyone works remotely. Those things make us kind of an outlier right now and makes it really easy for us to recruit fantastic people. I think in the next few years, more firms will realize demanding people work in person, demanding they work traditional eight to five, demanding they work crazy overtime in tax season. I think those will start decreasing. I hope they'll start decreasing. So I hope there'll be more an emphasis on training when I got, I mean, I've had firms literally tell me our policy is if you do it wrong, we will tell you about it. If you do it right, we won't. So just assume if you don't get any review notes that you did it right. And so that kind of mentality and the idea of like, well, I had it really hard, so you should have it really hard. I have been told that by multiple partners as well. That's the old way of doing things. I think firms that are more progressive and proactively train their people and those kind of things. I think that's going to be more common too. I think I hope that that's a trend. I might be fooling myself because that's what I want to see, but I hope that's a trend. Mm. I was fortunate enough to have Ron Baker on the show a while back, and, right. and in that conversation, he was, you know, of course, he's all about killing the billable hour, <laughs> you know? yep. and it, which was a tremendous conversation. And he made the comment about, you know, he thinks we're at the tipping point, you know, and I forgot what percentage yeah. and, and what his evidence was, but. I do believe that we're not at the tipping point yet as far as killing overtime or heavy mm-hmm. overtime in the profession, but we are making progress in approaching it because enough firms are starting to realize they're just going to have to change something. Otherwise, you know, otherwise they're going to have labor issues. So you have a lot of students, I think, listening. Like if I were a student right now or going to graduate or a newer staff, honestly, I'd be happy to work for a firm that has crazy hours. For my first couple of years, depending on my family situation, those kind of things, the time you want to work the crazy hours is when you're young and you have energy and you maybe have a lot fewer commitments. So fine, work for a few years for a firm. But if that firm rewards you by, for your good work by giving you more work, and then eventually you become a partner and they work more than anybody else, like I think people are going to want to jump off of that ship. I don't think it's a bad place to start, though. Cut your teeth, work a ton of hours, learn a bunch. And just plan on finding a place that's good to work after that. Like what that's a good to. point. That's a good point. Yeah. Married and three kids later, it's a little harder. Yeah. A little harder. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, I do end every show with the same three questions. So we probably better get to those. Yeah. The first one's usually the easier one. From a career perspective, what's been your proudest moment? Proudest moment. Man, that's hard. When I got my first client, she wasn't someone who I actually had any connection to or knew. I still remember that. That was a fantastic feeling. That's when I knew like, hey, maybe this is actually going to work. I mean, honestly, probably my proudest moment is where I am right now with the team I have. Fantastic. We did a big all team meeting yesterday and just looking and being able to see the, the amazing team that I have and the wonderful people. And that made me feel very, very proud. Yes. 
Yeah, that is a good feeling for sure. Well, second question, tell us about, or request, if you will, tell us about a lesson that you've learned the hard way. And and the more you can delve into the details, the better, because that's how we learn from these. You know, when I started, I thought that it was about technical skills. I'm a people person. I like people, but I thought it was about technical skills. And because I felt like I had those technical skills, like all would be well with me in my career. And learning that, I mean, I still distinctly remember the moment I think I felt it shift. I was married. We didn't have any kids, but I love my wife and I love, uh, still love her and love spending time with her. And so on a Saturday after working all day on Saturday and being invited to go out for drinks, and I don't personally drink, nothing wrong with it, but sitting in a bar for a few hours, I really just want to go back home and hang out with my wife. And so I declined that offer and I never got invited out with the group again. And that was sort of, I think, the beginning of the end as far as like, hey, who doesn't fit on our team? And hey, who's not really a fit here? And I was just completely ignorant of that. And so that it kind of falls under soft skills, honestly, because your people interactions and how you interact with people and your relationships, that's critically important. And I did not know that. So that was a mistake I made early on. Thank you. That That's another good thing for people to hear. Yeah, definitely a good lesson in there. Well, last question, and then we'll go ahead and close it down. What's the best piece of advice that you have ever received? The best piece of advice, and it's sort of come from multiple different places. And so I don't know if I could pin down like one person who told me this, but your mindset matters more than just about anything. And mindset and your attitude and how you approach things. And so that's, that's something that's very difficult to sort of wake up and decide, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm going to uh, attitude today. I'm going to have a good mindset today. But the idea was, uh, and actually, I was just thinking about this on my drive-in. We haven't been able to go to church for a long time. My dad had COVID a year ago, still very, very fragile. And so we're absolutely limiting interpersonal contact. And so I realized every week going to church or going to something like that, where you're hearing a encouraging, positive message encouraging you to think outside of yourself and be aware of things and be better than who you were before, man, that kind of thing, or the books that you read, Brené Brown, for example, the podcasts you listen to, those pull you in one or two directions. And over the course of time, being pulled in the direction that's going to help you have a more altruistic, a more abundance kind of a mindset, that's the single best thing, more than any technical tax classes, more than understanding the nuances of gap more than anything else. That is the single biggest thing I think that helps you in your career. And so, yeah, I don't know exactly where I pulled that from. I have a mentor, which if you don't have a mentor, my mentor's in the seventies. I haven't been able to get together with him for lunch for a year now, which is terrible, but he's, he's from a sales background. He's fantastic. I've learned so much from him. So this probably comes from him, at least at some level that, that, that those little day-to-day decisions that add up, and especially to add up to you having that right mentality and that growth mentality, that's the biggest thing for your career. Wonderful. Well, yeah, I knew we were going to have a couple interesting discussions or <laughs> you know points to talk about, but oh my gosh, there was a lot of insight in this one. I, yeah, I had no idea all the different topics we're going to get into. This, this is going to help a lot of people, a lot of people for sure. If someone wants to find out more about Finance Pal, what's your website so people can look you guys up? Yeah, financehub.com, that's us. And if you're interested, we are pretty much always hiring. We're growing pretty aggressively. So we'd love to reach out and uh, connect with people. And the jobs are remote. Did I catch that right? All the jobs are remote. We have flexible hours. So we have kind of core hours from nine to three. We want everyone logged in so we can collaborate and things. But outside of that, your professionals, we trust you and work when you need to. 
Wow, that is awesome. That is awesome. Well, thank you again, Andrew. I really appreciate you taking out the time for this. Thank you. Well, that was our guest for this week, Andrew Jordan of Finance Pal. I really did thoroughly enjoy this conversation. I had no idea we were going to get into the, the fraud situation story that he described. That didn't come up in our pre-show short conversation. And so that was a pleasant surprise. I mean, I hate that it happened, but it obviously was something that we can all learn from. And I really appreciated him sharing that. And then secondly, I knew we were going to talk about public accounting because he had started his own firm. And I knew we were going to talk about making the environment a little better, but I didn't realize the extent to which we were going to be able to get into that discussion as well. And I really appreciate just knowing how he started his firm and how he started it with the end goal in mind. It just, yeah, with with the culture that he wanted in mind. That was a very refreshing story. I appreciate him sharing that as well. Well, that wraps up another episode of Where Accountants Go, the Accounting Careers Podcast. Like I mentioned before, we have some very unique courses for accountants looking to build their skill set so that they can better their career. So if that describes you, please check out our website at mgrar.com. Once again, that's mgrar.com. Click on classes and you'll have everything you need there. Well, until next week, we'll see you again soon. After all, this is Where Accountants Go. Where Accountants Go.